Hey parents, welcome to a special episode of Circle Up. In this one, we have shared the audio from our financial aid night presentation from a couple of nights ago. Um, so you can listen to it if you'd like. It's a little longer than normal. It's about an hour, a little more than an hour. Um, and then the recording of the videos, if you want to see the presentation that was shared during the meeting, can be found in the same email you got the link for our podcast episodes. Um, so just look for it an email from me, Lucas Mendoza, um, in order to see the video. But if you'd like to listen to the presentation, continue on. Director of Financial Aid at the University of Notre Dame. Um, but tonight I will not be wearing my Notre Dame hat. Um, but rather that of uh, a, a member of the financial aid pro profession. So we truly appreciate your being here tonight. And I would like to um, pass it over to my uh, co-hosts, um, uh, Ms. Dolezal and Mr. Mendoza. All right, thank you, Gary. So again, thank you everybody for being here this evening, for joining us. Um, I'm Lucas Mendoza. I'm one of the counselors at St. Joseph High School. Um, I'm joined by Kate Dozel from Marion High School. Um, and yeah, we, we appreciate everybody being here tonight. Um, and I will introduce our speaker, Mr. Gary Wrigley. Um, he's an assistant director of financial aid at the University of Notre Dame. Um, and he's worked at Notre Dame for seven years. <clears throat> it's his first, it's his 21st year of working in higher education having previously worked for 14 years in various capacities in the Office of Admission at the University of Evansville. Prior to entering the higher education field, he worked in minor league baseball, primarily as the general manager of a minor league team affiliated with the Toronto Blue Jays. So thank you for, so much for being here and take it away. Okay, well, thank you very much. Mr. Mendoza, and thank you, Ms. Delzal. Uh, it's a pleasure. This is the second year via Zoom we've been doing uh, the financial aid uh, night uh, for the students and families at Marion and St. Joseph High School. We do realize that during the presentation, you may have questions. And so what we're going to ask is if you do have questions, please use the chat feature and direct it either to, uh, to Ms. Dozal or to Mr. Mendoza. And uh, they, at the end of the presentation, we will go through and answer the questions that you have. So uh, again, we truly appreciate your being here. And, uh, um, and hopefully this will be helpful, particularly to those families that maybe this is their first child who will be going to college and hopefully relieve a little bit of the anxiety they might have about financial aid and the financial aid process. So let me go back here. Okay, so what we will discuss tonight are a few different topics. We're going to discuss wh what is financial aid. We're going to discuss the expectations of parents and students in the financial aid process. We're also going to discuss some terms that are uh, central to the uh, financial aid process. And among those are going to be cost of attendance, expected family contribution, and financial need. Additionally, we are going to talk about categories, types, and sources of financial aid. And then we're going to uh, talk uh, quite a bit about the free application for federal student aid or FAFSA, which is the primary application that's part of the financial aid process. But we're also going to touch on a, another financial aid application that's used by some schools called the CSS profile. And then finally, we're going to talk about what happens if your family has special circumstances. So to start, what is financial aid? Well, it's pretty basic. It, uh, financial aid is, consists of funds that are provided to students and families to help pay for post-secondary or college educational expenses. So as we start this process, there are certain expectations uh, for both students and parents. Number one, from a student standpoint, you have to apply for admission. No college is going to provide you with a financial aid notification until you apply and are admitted to that particular college. Also to students and families, as you're starting your college search, do not eliminate schools on the basis of costs or what we sometimes call sticker price 
before you explore your options and before you let the financial aid process play out. It's very important to complete all the required financial aid forms, but also know and meet the deadlines for both admission and financial aid for all the schools to which you will be applying. So we're going to talk about a couple of terms here. And first is cost of attendance. And every college and university in America has a cost of attendance, but that is going to vary greatly from school to school. So what is cost of attendance made up of? Well, it's made up of both direct costs. In other words, costs for which you're going to be billed directly by the college, but also indirect costs, which are going to be costs that are still part of your college education that year, but you're not directly billed by the college for them. Direct costs are made up of tuition and fees. And then if the student also lives on campus, room and a meal plan, or what's commonly known as room and board. Beyond that, some of the indirect costs are going to include books and supplies, transportation, so that's getting to and from campus, and also miscellaneous personal expenses. So every college is going to set its cost of attendance based on these factors. The second term is expected family contribution, or you'll also hear the term EFC. And this is a measurement of the students and families' ability to pay for post-secondary educational expenses based upon that particular family situation. And the expected family contribution is comprised of two elements, the student contribution and the parent contribution. Now, what goes into calculating the expected family contribution? Well, out of the parent contribution, that is gonna be based from, an in, from a financial standpoint on income and family assets, the net worth of their assets, but also from a demographic standpoint, it's going to be based on family size, how many people are living in the household and how many people for the year that's being evaluated are going to be in college. From a student standpoint, it's going to be earnings they've had from work and also the net worth of their assets. Now it's important to know that when we look at these factors for most situations, the parental contribution will be the primary driver. The philosophy of financial aid is that for their undergraduate education, the parents have the primary obligation of paying for a college education. And if we look at things from a demographic standpoint, the number in college plays a greater role than does the family size. And for most families, income plays a greater role than assets. I like to say that the uh, method, methodology will expect a greater contribution out of $1,000 of income compared to $1,000 of assets. So what is financial need? Well, financial need is the difference between the cost of attendance, a family's expected contribution. That difference is the family's financial need. So let's see what that might mean. So let's take a look at three different universities. And as we mentioned, colleges will have a different cost of attendance. So school A maybe is a public school. Maybe this is a public school that's in state for this family. And maybe their cost of attendance for tuition, room, board, fees, books, personal expenses and transportation is $25,000. And the family completes the financial aid applications and they have a family contribution of $20,000. Well, at school A, the financial need for that family would be $5,000. School B maybe is a public school that has a cost of attendance of $50,000. But again, the family contribution for that family is gonna remain the same, that's the constant. But the difference is the financial need that's demonstrated at school B is $30,000 for this family. And school C maybe is a highly selective private school with a cost of attendance of $70,000. Again, the family contribution is $20,000. So financial need at school C is going to be $50,000.
We might have a situation that maybe at school A, maybe we have a family that uh, their expected family contribution is $30,000. Well, in that case, they wouldn't demonstrate any financial need at school A. But we have to look at that there are different categories of financial aid. Yes, certainly there is financial aid that is based on need, but there is also financial aid that is not based on financial need. Let's break this down a little further by type. And we see four different types of financial aid. And on the right-hand side of the screen, we see scholarships and grants, and you'll see gift aid. And on the left side, we'll see loans and work-study employment, and we see self-help. What gift aid means in the case of scholarships and grants is that is money you don't have to pay back. So if a scholarship or a grant or both scholarships and grants are part of your financial aid package, that is money you don't have to pay back. Self-help is a way for students and parents to help finance the student's education. So let's talk first about scholarships. At most schools, scholarships are a non-need base of financial assistance. At most schools, when you see that term, that's gonna be based on some characteristic the student has. For instance, uh, very commonly, it may be for academic excellence, excelling in the, in the, in the classroom. Um, having a, a, a high class rank or sometimes outstanding um, test scores, or maybe there might be scholarships that are tied into being a leader within the high school community or involvement or talent in areas like music or art or theater. Um, certainly we're familiar with the concept of athletic scholarships. So that is one form of gift aid. And again, at most schools, when you see the term scholarships, usually that is not based on financial need. So what are grants? Grants are like scholarships in that they are money that comes directly off your cost. You don't have to pay it back. But typically, if you see the term grant, usually that means it's driven by some type of need-based component. Over on the self-help end, we see work study. That would be a job on campus. And at many universities, there's opportunities to be employed. Um, at most schools, that would entail a job that would be a certain number of hours a week at a certain hourly rate. Usually that pay goes directly to the students, maybe every two weeks, like they would a job that they might have over the, over the summer. It would work the same way. Usually it doesn't come right off your cost, but gets paid to, to the student. And oftentimes they may use those for those indirect costs, like personal expenses or books. Or you may find a form of employment if the student is living on campus, uh, the opportunity to um, be a resident assistant where they're assisting the housing office uh, in a position in, in a, a dormitory uh, or residence hall. And maybe in exchange for that, they get their room paid for or maybe room and a meal plan paid for. Going the wrong direction here, I apologize. The final type of self-help is loans. And there are loans that are available both for students and parents. And they are available from the federal government and from private sources, but also sometimes from colleges. And I'm gonna just touch on a couple of loans here that are available uh, that are part of the process. One for students is what's known as the federal direct loan. And this is a loan that simply by completing the FAFSA and a couple steps after that, that any student can get. And there are two types of federal direct loans um, that um, students could potentially get. Now, I wanna talk a little bit about the amount that they might get. In the federal direct loan through the federal government, a student can borrow up to $5,500 their freshman year, up to $6,500 their sophomore year, up to $7,500 their junior year, and up to $7,500 in their senior year. If 
a student demonstrates financial need, then they could potentially have some of their loan subsidized by the federal government, meaning that interest doesn't accrue on the loan while the student is in college. And that amount on that freshman year is up to $3,500 of the $5,500 can be subsidized. $4,500 of their sophomore loan of the $6,500 can be subsidized and potentially up to $5,500 their junior and senior year on that $7,500 loan. Now, both the federal direct subsidized and unsubsidized loan are ways for the student to contribute to their cost of education when they're in a position to do so because repayment doesn't start until six months after the student graduates. And if the student goes on to graduate school or say law school or medical school, as long as they're enrolled at least half time as a graduate student, those loans go back into deferment. Now, the difference between the subsidized and the unsubsidized loan is if it's subsidized, again, while the student is in school before repayment begins, or even when they're in graduate school, no interest accumulates during that time period. It doesn't start accumulating until repayment begins six months after graduation. On the unsubsidized loan, interest starts accruing when the funds disperse, and the interest on both loans currently is 3.73%. And these are fixed rate loans. So if you borrow them in that given year, the loan rate won't change for the duration for that year's loan. Now, the next year, you may borrow a new loan that might have a slightly different rate, but again, that will still be a fixed rate loan. Another loan is what's known as the PLUS loan, and that stands for Parent Loan for Undergraduate Students. It is a credit-worthy loan, but parents only have to show minimal credit to, um, uh, to be approved. And it's, it's not even a certain FICO score. It's as long as you don't have like a bankruptcy or something you know, uh, um, unusual in, in your credit history. You actually find out immediately if you're approved. And if approved, you can borrow anywhere from $1,000 up to the remaining cost of attendance. Um, repayment on the PLUS loan begins 60 days after funds disperse. Although you can defer repayment until after the student graduates, but you would be accruing interest. Interest on the PLUS loan is currently 6.28%. And the basic rule of thumb is for every $5,000 borrowed on the PLUS loan, you would have monthly payments of about $60 a month. Now, on top of government loans, there are private loans. Now, for students, we always advise that you maximize your um, borrowing on any government loans before you explore private loans. Um, oftentimes, private loans for students will require a creditworthy adult, doesn't necessarily have to be a parent as a co-signer. There are also private loans for parents, but they may want to see if those terms compare favorably to the PLUS loan. So where does financial aid come from? Well, it can come from different sources, including the federal government, the state of Indiana government, colleges and universities, but also private sources, including employers. So we'll start first with the federal government. This is the largest source of financial aid nationally. Most of the financial aid that is uh, provided by the federal government is provided on the basis of financial need, although not all, the PLUS loan is not based on financial need and the federal direct unsubsidized loan is not based, but most federal aid is based on financial need. Uh, in order to be considered for aid from the federal government, you have to apply by using the FAFSA each year and meet certain eligibility requirements. There's a number of federal student aid programs. I'm going to touch on a, a couple of them here. I've already talked about uh, federal direct loan and the PLUS loan. The Pell Grant is a grant, so we know that means it's gift assistance. It is based solely on your expected family contribution. And now if you have an expected family contribution of around $6,000 or less, you would qualify for a Pell Grant. And whatever size Pell Grant that you qualify for, it would be the same size at any college that you choose to use it. Two year or four year, doesn't matter the cost of the college, your Pell Grant would be the same size. But if you do uh, qualify for a Pell Grant, you could potentially also qualify for another grant from the federal government that's known as the Federal Supplementary Educational Opportunity Grant. 
Additionally, the federal government does make funds available for federal work study jobs, which again would be that job on campus, the funding coming from the federal government, which means that the student would have to demonstrate financial need in order to be considered for that type of job. Although sometimes colleges will have their own funds where you don't have to demonstrate need, but for federal work study, need does have to be demonstrated. The state of Indiana also makes financial aid uh, available and it is administered through the Indiana Commission for higher education. You see the website there, um, uh, uh, which is www.in.gov.che. The important thing about aid from the state of Indiana is it can only be used at Indiana colleges. Now it can potentially be used both at public and private colleges, but state aid does not travel across borders. And for most of the state aid programs, you apply by completing the FAFSA. The two primary grant, two, uh, um, grant programs are what are known as Franco-Bannon grants. And that's gonna be based both on a combination of expected family contribution, but also the things that the student has done in the classroom, including perhaps are they an Indiana academic honors diploma, which could enhance the size if they qualify a grant for that size. There's also the 21st Century Scholars Program. And that's something that if students had qualified, they would have been invited in seventh or eighth grade. And for students who do maintain all the steps in the 21st Century Scholars Program, they do get their tuition paid for, for four years at any public university in the state, but they also can use a, a, a 21st Century Scholar grant. While it doesn't cover tuition, there are also funds that can be applied for private schools within the state of Indiana. The important thing to know about Indiana state aid is that there is a hard and fast deadline. And that is April 15th each year. So for those of our families who are seen, you know, families of seniors, it's vital that you do complete the FAFSA by April 15th, not just this year, but in every year, because even if you qualify for state aid, if you miss that deadline, you won't get it that year. Colleges and universities also have their own financial assistance uh, available. And that can be provided on the basis of, of both merit. They might have merit scholarships. They may have need-based grants, or they may have both. Uh, they may be offering gift aid, but they also may offer self-help like campus employment, or again, they may even, some colleges even have their own loans that could supplement governmental loans. Uh, every college is going to ask that you complete the FAFSA, and at many colleges, that's going to be the only specific financial aid form, but some schools do have additionally their own institutional applications. An example is the CSS profile that we'll talk about in a little bit. It's very important, though, to know that every school sets their own rules when it comes to deadlines and application requirements, so it's very important to familiarize yourself of those deadlines for the schools in which you're interested. There are also private sources of, of, of financial aid. There are community foundations, businesses may make them available, churches and places of worship and civic organizations uh, and so on. The important thing in this process is never pay for a scholarship search. If you get an email or contact from an organization that says, if you pay us X amount, we will find you financial aid, don't walk away from that run. That is a scam. There are enough free ways to find out what um, uh, scholarships are available through private organizations. And the best place to start is at your school guidance uh, office. Additionally, here's a couple of websites for some local scholarship foundations and community foundations where you can find some of the scholarships that are available uh, here in the local area. And there are also national outside scholarships and some legitimate sites for those you can find on the websites here, including through the big picture program through the College Board, which is the entity that administers the SAT, but also at finaid.org and fastweb.com. Employers also, I had talked about, sometimes check and see if they might have for you parents, maybe outside scholarships or tuition benefits available. So let's go about how do we apply for financial aid? Well, as we mentioned, the central application is this 
is what's known as the Free Application for Federal Student Aid or FAFSA. And it's very important to know that the first word is free. This is a government form that you're going to complete online. Um, there was a time when the internet was really pretty new when you found entities that bought names that were similar to the government website in which they would actually wanna charge you for it. I don't hear about that too much anymore, but if you do stumble upon those, again, you know that's a scam because this is free. And this is a standard form that is gonna collect both demographic information about the student family, as well as financial information. And you can find it online at studentaid.gov. Again, it's a government website. So the information that you're going to share on the FAFSA is going to be used that is to calculate the federal expected family contribution for your family. Now you can complete it at any time during academic year, but each year's FAFSA becomes available on October 1st prior to the academic year for which the student is requesting aid. So for those seniors in high school, you're going to do the 2022-23 FAFSA because that's going to be your freshman year. And that just became available on October 1st. And it's important to go in there and select the right FAFSA because you'll still see the 2021-22. That's not the one you complete. That's for the year that's currently taking place. You're going to want to do the one for next year. So every once in a while I'm doing one of these and someone says I've already completed the FAFSA. If you did it before October 1st, you did the wrong one because you did last year's. Again, when it comes though to completing it, colleges are gonna have different priority dates for completing the FAFSA, so you wanna know those. But the very important one to know is the state of Indiana deadline again, which is April 15th. So before you start the FAFSA, what you're going to do, and this is both the student and the parent, is to create what's known as an FSA ID. And this is going to be a username and password that is going to be the way of identifying yourself through the financial aid application process. Now, the student is going to, is going to create a, um, a, a, an FSA ID and the parent is going to. And it's important to know that you're going to use this throughout the process. It's very important that the student creates his or her own FSA ID, and then the parent creates his or her own FSA ID. Um, for parents, if you have other children that will be attending college later, you're going to use that same FSA ID that you created for yourself for those younger children as they come into college. So we have the website of where you're going to create the FSA ID. So after you do that, this is where you're going to um, uh, complete the FAFSA online at studentaid.gov. That's what it's going to look like. And you, for those of us who are starting, you're going to do the new to the FAFSA process where you're going to start here. As we mentioned, the student is going to complete certain sections and the parent is going to complete certain sections. So you're going to have to identify who you are and log in and use your FSA ID student. And then the parent will then also log in later with their FSA ID. You can actually start it a couple of years ago. There is a mobile app if you would prefer to do it on your phone. And it works the exact same way as doing it on a, on a uh, PC or on a, on a, on a laptop. Um, this is what it looks like. I don't know if I know a lot of families who do this, but that is another option that the federal government has given to you. And one of the parts of the process is information's being collected while completing the FAFSA. You may be asked, would you like to use what's known as the IRS data retrieval tool? What this is when we think about it, a FAFSA is through the US Department of Education. It's part of the federal government. Where the IRS, where you, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, um, complete your, your taxes, that's part of the federal government as well. And the computers from both of these entities within the federal government can talk to each other. So when you get to a certain point, 
if you're eligible, it will ask, do you want to migrate information from your uh, tax return into your FAFSA? And you can do that, it's up to you. But if you do, what that does is that guarantees that the information that has been transferred over um, is going to um, be um, authentic, that, it, that it's going to be the right information. So that way, a school is less likely to ask you to send additional documents as part of the financial aid process as, as they're reviewing um, your, your FAFSA. One important thing on this, it does transfer this information from your tax return. And one piece of information we're gonna talk about that is included on the FAFSA that is not on a tax return from an income standpoint is contributions to tax deferred retirement. And that's found on a W-2. So sometimes we'll um, have folks that will migrate the information over, but they forget they have to add this information. And I'll talk about that in, in, in just a little bit on where you're going to find that. So as you're completing the FAFSA, here are the things that you're going to need. Um, you're going to need uh, social security numbers for both students and a parent as, uh, as well. Um, the important thing to know is that in completing the FAFSA, it is based on the eligibility of the student and their citizenship. So the student must either be a US citizen or a permanent resident of the United States. They do not ask any citizenship questions about the parent. And we may even have a parent that uh, does not have a social security number, but as long as a student is a US citizen or permanent resident, and they also have a social security number, uh, even if the parent does not have one, they can simply put in all zeros and it will not stop them from completing the FAFSA or the student being eligible for, uh, for financial aid. If the student has a driver's license, they'll wanna have that as well. Again, if they are a permanent resident rather than a citizen, they'll wanna have that card available. The FAFSA is going to be based on income from the year that you just completed your taxes. So, the, the FAFSA will use your information from your 2020 federal tax returns. And so that would have been the tax return that you would have completed by April 15th, 2021. It will also ask for information that will come from the W-2s from 2020 as well. We talked about untaxed income. Um, perhaps there may be cases where child support is received or if you pay child support, information on that, but also contributions to retirement accounts. And this is the most common error we find on the FAFSA. It's both overreported and underreported. Where you find this is going to be on your W-2 in box 12, and it will spell this out on the FAFSA, but just be mindful of this. And if you have information in box 12 associated with codes D, E, F, G, H, or S, those letters, then that's reported there as untaxed income. So again, that's spelled out on the FAFSA, but we do wanna let you see that because that is both most commonly overreported and underreported item that we find on the FAFSA. Also are going to collect information on assets, both for students and parents. So you'll wanna have your bank statements, if see what uh, maybe savings or checkings uh, that you have, but also records of investments the market value against anything owed on stocks and bonds, uh, mutual funds, uh, educational plans, or what are known as 529 savings accounts. You're going to want to have that for all your children. And the important thing to remember on 529s is that that counts as a parent asset rather than a student asset, even if it's in the student name. And that's a good thing because parent assets are assessed at a much, much, much lower rate than our student assets. The thought being that parents need assets and need income to pay for many things associated with the family, whereas a, a student doesn't have those obligations and thus can utilize a higher percentage of their assets to pay towards their education. So it is important that you do list that as a parental asset. But again, it's not just for that student, but for all children that you have 529 funds. And if you own a business, you'll wanna have the business records. Now there are going to be some investments that are not included on the FAFSA. Home equity 
is not considered an asset on the FAFSA. However, and I had this, I think on the, on the other slide, I didn't touch on it. If you own other real estate that is not your home, that is reported as an asset. So again, you're gonna look at the value of that real estate, less any mortgage on it, that is going to be reported as, a, um, as a, an asset. The value of life insurance policies do not count as an investment, nor do the value of any tax deferred retirement plans, annuities or pensions. So if you have a 401k or 403b or Roth IRA, the value of those do not count as an asset. So again, that's a very common uh, mistake that, that we see is that people have funds in a 401k and they reinvest, they report that as investment, that should not be reported as investment. Um, on the FAFSA, if you live on a family farm and you operate it, that is not included in a, as, as an investment. Although if you live in a home and then you own farmland or a farm that operates that you don't live on, then that would count as an asset. And then what is defined by the federal government as a small family owned business does not count as an asset. And the definition of this by the federal government is twofold. Number one is that your family must own and control more than 50% of that business. Um, family is, is defined fairly broadly. It does have to be, um, it can be not just parents, but if there are cousins, part of that immediate family that are part of that family that have ownership, they count as family. And it is control more than 50%. So let's suppose we have a situation that maybe it's a partnership made up of just two members. One is a student's parent and the other is a non-relative. Well, they both, and say they both own 50%, that would be reportable because not more than 50% is owned by the family. And the other definition is that the business must have 100 or fewer employees. So if, if it's family owned more than 50% and fewer 100 employees, you are not reporting the value of that business on the FAFSA. Now for most students, they are going to be considered a dependent based upon very, very strict rules that are spelled out on the FAFSA. So there's all these different questions that deal with age and, and, and other areas. And if you answer no to all those questions, and certainly we would expect a very strong majority of high school seniors for that to be the case, they would be considered a dependent student. But some, some rare instances, they may um, be able to answer yes to one of those questions, in which case that would make the student independent and parental information would not be collected. But these are, again, are very, very, narrow definitions in very specific areas. Probably more important is to determine who is considered a parent. So there are a few different definitions set forth by the federal government. If parents and parents are, whether it's biological parents or adoptive parents, if they're married to each other or if they're not married to each other but still live together, you're going to answer the question about both parents. If the student's parent is widowed or single, then you're going to answer questions only about that parent. If parents have divorced or are separated, now it doesn't have to be a legal separation. It's if they are living in two separate households, then you're going to answer the question about the parent with whom you have lived the most over the past 12 months. It's only gonna collect that parent's information, again, if parents are divorced or if they are separated. And it's gonna be based on the date that you complete the FAFSA. What is the marital status on the date that you complete the FAFSA? Um, if you lived with both parents exactly six months, in that case, then you're going to answer the question about the parent who has provided the greater amount of financial support. Uh, that doesn't happen very often. Usually, um, in these cases, uh, students will live with one parent more than the other, in which case they would answer uh, only about that parent with this exception. If the widowed or divorced parent has remarried 
as of the date that the FAFSA is completed. Then you're going to answer questions about both the parent and the person the parent has married. So both the parent and the step parent. So before you complete the FAFSA, a helpful tool can be what's known as the FAFSA on the web worksheet, which you can actually find online. And what this does is it gives you a preview of the questions that are going to be asked of the student and parent to kind of help you prepare. Uh, not every question is on there, but they are in the same order of uh, that they're going to be on the FAFSA. An important thing is that there has been a change in federal aid eligibility just in the past couple of months. Up until this year, male students who are 18 or older had to register for the selective service in order to be eligible to receive federal financial aid. Um, that requirement is no longer in place. It is written on the FAFSA on the web worksheet because that was already printed, but that is no longer a requirement to be eligible for financial aid from the federal government. Now, we talked about there are some errors that we frequently see on the FAFSA. Um, very common, social security numbers. Sometimes people will transpose numbers. Very important to do that. And also very important that you use your legal name that is registered with social security, not a nickname or things like that, because the federal government has to be able to connect you to those pieces of information or it won't let you complete the FAFSA. Um, again, we talked about marital status, make sure that you're um, completing it correctly. If parents are divorced and apart, you're only gonna do one parent. But again, in the case, if a parent is remarried, it's gonna be the parent and the step parent. We talked about common untaxed income, uh, um, uh, errors, especially with tax deferred. Um, also, it will specifically say the line on the tax return that indicate that you use for income taxes paid. I know in the 2020, it's line 22, but it'll spell it out there for you. Household size, make sure that you do include all the people that are living in your household for which parents provide more than half of their support for the upcoming year. But also, make sure you get the number of household members in college correct. Because again, it's going to be who's in college in 2022-23. So we know the student is, but if there's also gonna be other family members that year, you'll wanna include those. And again, we talked about real estate and investment net worth. Again, sometimes errors are made in those areas as well. So once you complete the FAFSA, you will find out your, your family's expected family contribution. Think of this as an index number upon which federal financial aid is administered. Um, that a family with a lower EFC, and it can be as low as zero, is going to demonstrate greater financial need than a family with a higher EFC. And you're gonna actually be able to see if you completed the, um, uh, the FAFSA online, if the student has an FSA ID, that they use there, they're gonna be able to view an SAR, which is their student aid report online. The important thing is the expected family contribution is just that, it's an index number. It does not say, that does not mean that is what you're going to pay for college. Each college is gonna use this as part of the process, but ultimately they are going to determine the financial aid that you're going to get. And when you complete the FAFSA, it's gonna to go to the, what's known as the um, central processing uh, system. They are going to give you the results to the student, but they're also going to send them to any college that you list on your FAFSA. And the students can list up to 10 colleges on their FAFSA. If you list their school code, then they are going to get that result as well. And this is what your student aid report will look like when it comes back. And again, as long as you included a valid email address, the student is going to get this after completing the FAFSA. We know, especially for parents and students that maybe this is their first time they've ever done the FAFSA, they might like some help. Well, help is available. Two Sundays every year, what is held is College Goal Sunday. And this is an opportunity for you to get your FAFSA completed 
with the help of a financial aid professional. And this takes place two different Sundays during the year. This year it will be November 7th. And, uh, and then in February, it'll be on February 27th. And these take place from 2 to 4 p.m. You can find information on collegegoalsunday.org. It's at 38 different locations throughout the state of Indiana, including IU South Bend hosts one. If you're going to do this, you're going to want to bring some things to help you so that you can go there that day with the information and get your FAFSA completed um, all at once. Um, so uh, what you'll want to do is you'll definitely want to create the FSA ID ahead of time. You, again, you'll want to bring those um, uh, social security numbers, driver's license number. And again, if it's applicable, if, if you're a permanent resident, you want to have the alien registration number and, and um, resident card if it applies to you. You'll want to bring both if uh, uh, the parents 2020 tax return and students filed taxes in 2020, bring those as well as W-2s and the information on any untaxed information. And again, the bank statements and investment and business information as well. So we talked quite a bit about the, pro, the, the, the FAFSA and that is for most schools, the only financial aid application that you have to do in addition to maybe an admission application. Sometimes they may have their own scholarship applications, but from a need-based standpoint, for most schools, that's the only one. But there is an additional form that is used by some schools that's known as a CSS profile. And there's about 400 schools, colleges, and, and, and scholarship programs that use these. You find it online at the, uh, on the College Board website that you see right there. Like the FAFSA, it's gonna be made available this year's uh, um, CSS profile was made available on October 1st. Unlike the FAFSA, it is not a free application. There is a fee to file and it's $25 for the first school and $16 for each additional school. However, not every family needs to pay. Your fee is waived if a student qualifies for the SAT fee waiver or if the family's adjusted gross income is under $100,000 is autom automatically waived. So why do some colleges choose to use this? It's because it is a much more detailed application that is in the, the FAFSA, and it helps college maybe get a better understanding of that family's financial situation. Uh, schools that use the CSS profile in the University of Notre Dame is, is one of the schools uh, that does use that, say that it's an opportunity for the student and their family to kind of tell their family's financial story. Now, like the FAFSA, it is going to use 2020 tax information uh, in determining that part of uh, financial aid, uh, your, your, the family contribution. But while it's going to use as the base here, it's also going to see a little bit again about you telling that story. What did 2021 look like for you? And what do you expect it to look like you for you in 2022? Again, it kind of gives us an opportunity to see what's the family situation. Is income going to stay pretty stable or was it unusually high in 2020 or is it going up quite a bit in 2021? It collects more information on the family itself. Um, FAFSA only asks how many in the family, how many in college. The profile asks, what are the ages of the siblings? What's it look like for the family in the future? Uh, what students are in college? What year are they in college? What colleges do they attend? And it also allows families to report information in a, in a narrative form on special circumstances. There's actually a special circumstances section. FAFSA doesn't have that, but the CSS profile does so that you can make colleges aware about things that may have been unusual for your family that you want us to be aware of. Also, the way that the expected family contribution and the FAFSA is calculated is different than the methodology used to determine the family share from the profile. So the FAFSA we refer to as federal methodology, or you'll hear FM, and the CSS profile we call institutional methodology. And we actually find for most families, the family share that's calculated through institutional methodology 
is actually lower than for most families than is the expected family contribution from the FAFSA. Among the items that are collected on the profile is allowances are given for private school tuition for younger siblings. So we know that we're talking to two private schools uh, this evening. We know that many of the students may have younger siblings that are also in private schools. Well, the profile actually allows you to share that information so we can make an allowance for the funds that are being spent on private secondary or elementary education. Also, you maybe you had high unreimbursed medical expenses. That information is co collected directly on the CSS profile. There are also offsets when we look at what money um, should be protected for um, items that um, families have to spend money on. Well, the FAFSA simply uses information from the 1967 Bureau of Labor Statistics and just have adjusted each year for inflation. Whereas the profile uses uh, consumer expenditure data and that more accurately reflects what are people actually buying today? I mean, when you think about it in 1967, it's not like you were paying for cell phone service, you know, and things along that line. So we think that it's a fairer um, um, determination of allowances. There are, however, some things that are collected on the profile that aren't collected on the FAFSA, including home equity. Um, if you have business ownership, it doesn't distinguish of whether that's a small business or not, or if you own a family farm, whether you live on it or not, those are reported as, uh, as, as assets. Also for families who do have uh, a business ownership, FAFSA is simply looking at adjusted gross income, but oftentimes uh, when looking at the, the profile and an analysis of family income, they may view, colleges may view business losses different than business losses, which are totally legitimate for tax purposes, but they may look at those different when it comes to evaluating um, family income. And also in cases of divorce where the custodial parent hasn't remarried, again, they're not collecting information from the non-custodial parent on the FAFSA, but many colleges that use the CSS profile will ask for the non-custodial parent to also file a CSS profile. It will be a separate one. So the custodial parent will file um, the information on them and the student the non-custodial will file information just on them. Um, and neither one has access to either one, but, they, but they're both sent to the college to look at that information. So we talked about on the profile, if you have special circumstances, you can actually share those in the narrative form. But what about for the schools to which you apply that only have the FAFSA? So these are conditions that, that aren't documented through the numbers that are collected through the FAFSA. And what you're going to have to do is send a written explanation, probably an email, and then documentation of these special circumstances to each college's financial aid office for each of the colleges to which the student has been admitted. The college is then going to review that information. They may ask for additional information if they find that's necessary. Then they will make a determination of, will these special circumstances have a bearing on the financial aid made available to the student and family? Now, the important thing is that you may share identical circumstances to different colleges and different colleges may choose to make adjustments or not make adjustments or adjust in different manner. It's up to each individual college to make that determination. So if we have two colleges and they come to different conclusions, you have to abide by that decision for each college. You can't appeal this, say, to the US Department of Education. So what are examples of special circumstances? Well, we talked about a couple that are collected up front on the profile, but if your FAFSA only you'd want to share, like secondary school education, um, extraordinary uh, unreimbursed uh, medical expenses, but you know, it may be you know, a, a change in parents, maybe divorce has taken place after the FAFSA was uh, um, completed. Um, we certainly know with COVID, we will have families that will say, you know what, 2020, we got through that okay, but because of COVID, the nature of our employment, 
our income went down. Or maybe again, there was a one-time bonus in a certain year. And so, or, or maybe a, a family had an inheritance or, uh, or sold a piece of land or something like that. What, what's um, known as one-time income. Um, maybe there are other family members uh, for which there is um, unusual expenses as associated with their care within the household or even outside of the household sometimes. And that we also see their student cannot obtain parental information. And that's, again, very limited. It's not the parent just chooses not to complete the FAFSA. It's because of extraordinary circumstances, the parent cannot complete the FAFSA. So once you go through this process, every college will provide you with a financial aid notification. And that is gonna be based upon that college's financial aid policies. Within that financial aid, notification is going to include all sources of financial aid that you receive from the federal government, from the state of, Inter, uh, of Indiana government, and then again from the college itself. And it may include gift aid, it may include uh, op opportunity for campus employment, and it may include student loans as well. So what happens after we get that? How do we then address the bill later? So the, the part of those direct costs that aren't covered by financial aid, you're gonna see colleges are going to give you different options. Most colleges are going to allow you to make monthly payments, usually interest-free, sometimes with just a small minimal amount to pay up uh, to uh, register for the payment plan. Uh, we talked about the federal plus loan is a means to address those costs or private education loans or a combination. We oftentimes see families figure out, okay, we figure we can pay this amount out of our income and maybe we can um, allot this amount out of our assets, but this different amount, maybe we're going to finance through, through a plus loan. So that's the thing. There's a lot of flexibility when it comes to financing uh, options. So just a couple things to keep in mind as we wrap up here. Please keep separate notes for each perspective um, college that you're considering. Because again, they're all gonna have their own rules and so on. You wanna make sure what your communication has been with them. Students, I can't say this enough, monitor your email. That is how schools are going to reach out to you. And we want both students and parents to know the FAFSA, even though it collects information both from parent and student, it is technically considered the student's FAFSA. It's not the parent's FAFSA, it's the student's FAFSA. And so communication is going to go directly first to the student. So make sure you monitor your email to see if there are requests coming back from the colleges. Mark your calendar with deadlines. You don't wanna miss out on a scholarship or some financial aid because you miss a deadline. And never worry about reaching out and asking questions. That is what we're here for. You are not bothering us if you ask us questions. That's what we're here for. And that's what we'd actually like to lead in next. But I also want to give you my contact information as well. Because you may have questions that you think about after tonight. Or maybe we realize the nature of financial aid that is that it can be extremely personal. And maybe you don't wanna ask your questions in an open forum, you'd rather do it in a more private manner. Please feel free to contact me. And I wanna reiterate this, it does not have to be about the University of Notre Dame. Even if your son or daughter is not even intending to apply to the University of Notre Dame, but you have financial aid questions, I am more than happy to answer them. I'm more than happy also, even though tonight is focused on general financial aid, if you do have specific questions about the University of Notre Dame financial aid, certainly I'm happy to answer those as well. So with that, what I would like to do is hand it over to uh, Mr. Mendoza and Ms. Uh, Dozal and uh, see if there are any questions that have been asked. Yes, we do have one question so far in the chat. And okay. the question is, does the non-custodial parent only need to create a CSS profile if specifically asked to do so by the college? Yes. Um, yes, that is the case. Um, because not every college, I, I, I don't know, um, 
I think that probably more colleges um, that uh, um, request the profile do ask for the non-custodial than don't, but not everyone does. Um, I can speak though, as, as a profile school that the University of Notre Dame does ask uh, that the non-custodial parent does create the profile. But that's not true of every profile school. Um, but yes, you will wanna wait and see if they ask, um, ask the non-custodial parent uh, to complete the CSS profile. Very good question. I did also receive some questions. Um, so for employees in Notre Dame, how does the employee tuition benefit get calculated into the financial aid package at ND and other schools? Okay, all right. Um, at, at the, uh, okay, for when you're saying, when you're using at other schools, it's going to be up to that individual school how they do um, uh, uh, the uh, financial, how that um, goes into um, their financial aid. So every school is gonna make their own determination of how a tuition benefit from Notre Dame might be viewed at their school. At Notre Dame, um, it is used as part of how we meet financial need. So if the student demonstrates greater financial need than the size of the tuition benefit, that would go towards meeting need. However, if they demonstrate less need than is the benefit, they still get the, the value of the benefit, if that makes sense. Um, I realize this is specifically about uh, Notre Dame as well, and, and, um, and that parent can feel free to directly contact me as well. I'd be more than happy to talk to them in greater depth about that as well. Thank you. And one other question, are cash assets versus investment assets counted differently on FAFSA or CSS? No, no. So, um, so if, you, uh, if you have investment assets and you have um, say savings right in the bank, it will be assessed the exact, the exact same. Um, I do want to say this, though, that there are protections built in for assets before any contribution is expected. And again, the maximum amount above that threshold that the assets are assessed are at a 5% value. And you have to have a certain level of assets before they're even assessed at that value. But cash assets and investments are assessed the same. And then there's a question about EFC calculators and if they are accurate, and is there a specific one that you might recommend? Very good question. Um, so every college does have to have a net price calculator. That is actually federal law. So I, I would suggest um, that you go um, online to the financial aid website, and I believe you have to be able to get to it, the net price calculator within two clicks from the main financial aid uh, page. Uh, that, that you can complete and different colleges are gonna ask different questions on that. I would say that um, the, the uh, estimate that comes from a net price calculator is only as accurate as the information that is put in. Um, that that um, I like to say it's a tool, it's not an answer. So the more accurate it is, the more likely it's going to um, be accurate. So um, I would look at that, but you can also go on on the uh, uh, federal website. There's actually a collection of different um, net price calculators or a college board. If you go on there, they will actually give you links to every college's um, website. There is also one that you may want to go to that's called um, myintuition.org. So that's M-Y-I-N-T, you know, how we spell intuition, uh, dot O-R-G. There's about 75 schools that use this. And this is one that only asks a very few number of questions. And then the response it gives is, this is what we think might be a best case scenario. This might be a worst case scenario. And in between is where we think you, you'll be around. So that may be one also that you may wanna look. But I would usually go um, to, the, to a specific college's website. Other questions we might have. 
Oh, no, I have one. Oh, perfect. Okay. Um, okay, there is, this is specific, uh, this question about uh, ranking. When we use the net price calculator for Butler and Purdue, they ask for a class rank. Is this a problem since Marion doesn't let us know the ranking? You know, I don't want to speak for either for either university. I think that you'll want to talk to them um, directly. Um, um, so I, I don't I don't think that I have. Um, I, I wouldn't want to speak for either one of those. I would say though that probably both schools are cognizant that there is a, a pretty fair um, uh, number of of schools uh, that do not rank. So I think they'll probably be used to that. I know that I had worked at a college that um, while it did have um, uh, merit scholarship um, for number ranked students, it, it did not penalize students that um, went to schools that did not rank, but I can't speak for either, either Butler or Purdue and how that might play in a financial aid. So I, I'd advise that you do contact um, uh, both of those institutions. We have and another maybe question. Oops, let, sorry, uh, let Ms. Dozel know afterwards. So in the future, <laughs> we can know. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we have another question. How much time does it take to complete the FAFSA? I would say first time. I've done College School Sunday a few times. And I would say that people who came prepared, I would say they can get it done anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. That seems to be the last question on my end. Uh, Lucas, what about you? Same, no additional questions. Okay. So, so Gary, we'd really like to thank you for your time and your expertise. Um, I feel like a lot of our families got some very valuable information and help as they tackled the financial aid process. So thank you again for your time. Um, speaking are, with us tonight. You are very welcome. And both of you are just a pleasure to work with. I can't say that uh, enough. You, you make this process so easy, even in a time when we're, we're doing things through Zoom. And I wanna thank you both so much for that. And I wanna thank all of the students and parents who are with us tonight. And, and I'll just leave you with this thought. Um, you're doing the right things. The fact that you're here tonight says a lot. And, 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 and just, if you keep doing the right things, you're going to end up in the college that's the right college for you. And, and, and just, just stay, I, I know that it's a process and I know that sometimes it can be filled with anxiety and worry and so on, but just keep doing these real things, control that you can, what you can control and be patient on that which you can't control. But I wanna wish everyone and particularly the students the, the best of luck in their college search. And again, anytime I can help in any way and answer any questions, and again, it doesn't have to be about Notre Dame, please feel free to contact me, so. Great, thank you so much. Thank you so much. We hope everyone has a wonderful evening. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Circle Up with the Counselors.